Good morning. Predators try to separate weaker prey from their protectors. This is what is happening in Corinth. Paul's coming under fire. He's being accused of being fickle and wishy-washy. His name is being dragged through the mud. And to his concern, no one is coming to his defense. And this is dangerous because when the Corinthians dismiss him, they will dismiss the gospel that he preaches as well. And Paul understands that the eternal welfare of the flock is at stake. I'm going to read from, and we're going to work our way through 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 16. He starts off in verse 2, Make room in, our, in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul says, make room in your hearts to make room in your hearts for us. The problem is that space in their hearts for Paul is being crowded out. Um, there are individuals who are drawing away the Corinthians' devotion from Paul to themselves. And Paul implies that unjust charges are being leveled against him by these individuals in order to insert themselves into the Corinthians' devotion. They are accusing Paul of wrongdoing with respect to his spiritual influence in the life of the Corinthians. They're accusing him of corrupting them and taking advantage of them. These charges are being, maybe not believed, but they are being tolerated by the Corinthians, and this is becoming a very dangerous situation spiritually. And the reason is because Paul was their shepherd, and they were his sheep, and there were wolves lurking about. Jesus had sounded an alarm earlier, concerning the influence of wolves. What he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inward are, inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus describes wolves as false prophets. Again, we've thought about this before, but wolves, who those who come in sheep's clothing, when Jesus talks about Watch out for those who come in sheep's clothing. Uh, the individuals who come in sheep's clothing, we think of a wolf perhaps dressed up like a sheep. But that's not really the image he has in mind. It's not wolves dressed up as sheep. It's wolves dressed up as shepherds. Individuals who claim to represent God and to speak on his behalf are misrepresenting him. Jesus warned his disciples about false spiritual authorities who profess to be shepherds. And again, if we think about wolves in sheep's clothing, it's interesting to think about the fact that wolves don't hate sheep. They don't have anything against them. They just need to eat them. And uh, what's happening is these individuals who are putting themselves in a place of spiritual authority, they don't hate the Corinthians, but what's going to happen, Paul understands, is they are going to end up taking from them rather than giving to them. Um, they will claim to pray for the flock, but what Paul understands that at some point they will pray on the flock. Uh, Paul sounded this same wolf alarm when he left 
the church at Ephesus, he says in Acts 20, verses 29 to 30, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul warned the Ephesian elders that when he left, wolves would enter and these individuals would seek, as they are at Corinth, to draw away the devotion of the Christians from those who were their caretakers, from their shepherds, to those who were claiming to be shepherds, but are really wolves in sheep's clothing. And Paul knew that this was what was coming for the church in Corinth. Um, Once under the control of wolves, the sheep would notice a change. In the beginning, it might seem like a good situation. These individuals would seemingly uh, care for them spiritually, but gradually, Paul understood, the good news wouldn't remain the good news. It would turn from the good news into the not-so-good news. And gradually, what would happen, these Christians would end up feeling the weight of spiritual obligations. The love, freedom, and grace that came with the gospel would be replaced by fear, obligation, and guilt. Paul learned that the Corinthians were already in the process of being drawn away by these individuals and listen to them as as Paul in verse 4 pleads with them not to allow that to happen. He said, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal, so that I rejoiced still more. Jesus traced the spiritual sickness that he that he observed um, to the condition of sheep being without a shepherd. Matthew nine thirty six. He said, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Um, He saw people who were in the process of moving hither and yon, and from a spiritual perspective, they weren't doing well. What he understood is that their spiritual condition was a direct result of not being under the care of a shepherd who would be able to care for and provide for them. Jesus understood how dependent sheep were on shepherds, he said in John ten twenty seven and 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give, e- I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. A shepherd, in order to be able to cultivate responsiveness in the sheep, has to develop voice recognition so that the sheep 
associate the voice of the shepherd with care and security and nurture and love and warmth. This takes a long time. They could drive the sheep, but that's not what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd takes the time to cultivate Again, voice recognition in the sheep so that when the shepherd calls the sheep, they respond to his voice. Um, And this helps us to understand why Paul is so insistent that they remain with him. He understands that he is a good shepherd and he understands that those who seem to care about the sheep spiritually they don't, they haven't spent the time with them to cultivate the kind of trust that Paul has developed. It's, it's interesting when you think about the difference between a bad shepherd and a good shepherd. Um, from a spiritual perspective, uh, a bad shepherd will talk about bad sheep. Bad shepherd will talk about how anxious the sheep are and how they're always going hither and yon. And so he tries to point them in this direction to green pasture. They go in that direction to pasture that's not green. A bad shepherd will talk about bad sheep. Boy, I have a bunch of bad sheep that I have to take care of. A good shepherd won't talk about bad sheep. He'll talk about bad shepherds because the the responsibility to cultivate responsiveness falls on the shepherd, not on the sheep. And that's what Jesus understood. Um, Shepherds work hard to cultivate responsiveness in sheep. They don't leave things to chance. Again, Paul knew what was coming for the flock in Corinth. Once under the influence of those who didn't and couldn't and wouldn't take the time to really cultivate a relationship with them as Paul had done. And that's why Paul, in this passage, he thinks back with them to his history with them. And he talks about the different things that had occurred in his relationship with them. Um, He resumes, he began this letter in the second chapter talking with them about some of the decisions that he made. And what we know, he spent, Paul spent about a half, a year and a half in Corinth during the second of his three missionary journeys before making a follow-up visit once he left Corinth to plant churches elsewhere. And he was planning to make a follow-up visit before he did so. He sent Timothy to find out how they were doing. Timothy returned with a bad report. Um, So bad that Paul determined he had to change his plans and he he went straight to Corinth to pay what he called and talked about as a sorrowful visit. This visit was very difficult, involved a difficult public interchange with at least one irate church member who was making a lot of allegations against Paul. After Timothy came to Paul and left. Things went from bad to worse. There was more public criticism from this church member. We don't know exactly what he was saying. Uh, He might have been a sacred separatist. He might have been telling them, Paul doesn't ask you to depart from those who don't believe as we do. Paul didn't do that. He he nurtured individuals to send them into the world, not to separate them from the world. He might have done that. We don't know exactly. But anyways, he this individual seemed to have been gaining some support from a minority in the congregation. 
And what was happening, even though the majority might not have been going along with this guy, they stood by in silence. And they allowed this individual to criticize Paul openly, neither supporting the apostle nor disciplining this critic. After Paul received a report about the public criticism, Timothy told him he fired off a painful letter to the Corinthians. We don't have this letter, but Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. Uh, He confronted the congregation for standing by as the offender had his stay, had his say, he instructed them to excommunicate the troublemaker and to this individual who claimed to be a follower of Christ, where Paul says, you got to get somebody like that out of there. I instructed them to do so. He informed them that he was going to put off his visit. He didn't want to make another sorrowful visit. He didn't, he chose not to visit them right away because things were in a mess. He didn't want to come and have to bring the same type of concern and sternness that he expected to have to do so. Um, Paul, after a period of time, then sent another one of his associates, Titus, to find out how the Corinthians responded to this really strong letter. And Paul was on pins and needles. He cared about them, and he knew he had to speak sternly in order to pull them out from under the cloak of influence that was placed, being placed upon them. So he spoke directly and sternly, but he was also concerned Titus came back to him with good news that they took Paul's commands to heart. They still cared for him deeply. And Paul wrote 2 Corinthians in response to this report by Titus. Listen to what he says in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in this matter. Paul gently assures them that he never intended to hurt them in sending the letter, but he's glad that the grief that the letter generated turned out to be godly grief. And Paul makes a difference between godly grief and worldly grief. And as we think about the difference between those two, a couple of things come to mind. You could think of godly grief as the grief of Peter, when he didn't do what he would have wanted to do with respect to Jesus when somebody said, you were with him and Peter denied it, and then ended up moving through that, being sorrowful, but then he ended up connecting with Jesus and ended up moving on in his Christian life. If you think of somebody who, with worldly grief, you think of Judas Iscariot, who um, turned Jesus over and was um, sad that he did so, was not able to find the ability to move out of the sadness and continue to walk with Jesus. And 
There's different ways we might think about godly grief and worldly grief in this context. However, the difference between godly grief and worldly grief is not so much psychological. Godly grief will allow these individuals to stay connected with their shepherd. And that's what Paul understands is first and foremost, without the care and guidance of a good shepherd, these individuals, no matter how well-meaning they are, are going to be led astray. Godly grief will cause them to say, you know what, we believe some of these things about Paul, but now we see he's always cared for us and would cause them to repledge their devotion to him. And Paul, again, didn't want the devotion because of him. He had a message that he understood that they needed and that he knew in a clearer way than anyone did because Jesus gave him the message to give to Gentiles. And Paul understood if they stayed in the place where he or those he trained were that the individual sitting in that place would be cared for. They would be able to know true things about God, that that he brought a new covenant with Jesus and that the old covenant had been replaced. They would hear these things and then they would come to think accurately about God. That's what, that would happen if they practiced godly grief and said, listen, you know, I'm sorry and we're going to... We listen to that guy, and, and so uh, worldly grief would cause them to maybe feel bad, but not to reconnect with him. And that's the last thing Paul wants. Um, in order to deal with the dangerous influence of the critic, Paul asked them to do something again. He asked them to excommunicate the individual. And what they did is they did so. And Paul acknowledges that they had done that, the reason why it makes and it means something to him, because this individual, his, he was pulling them from Paul. And in moving him out, they were dealing with the influence of someone who would continue to put a space, a gap between their devotion and Paul. Um, they pushed this guy out, and apparently um, he got the message because Paul ends up saying earlier in this letter, you know, what you did to that guy, that's enough. You know, you you pushed him out, and apparently the guy felt bad about it, and the the purpose had been accomplished. Um, And at the time, it's interesting that excommunication meant something because there was only one place in a city There's only a small series of house churches in which Paul or somebody that he had discipled was giving the truth of what God's message was. Um, And what ended up happening then when Paul used excommunication, the individuals that he excommunicated by and large were those who claimed to represent God, but misrepresented him. It was a lot of immorality and things like that. Yet Paul, it wasn't just, it really, really wasn't immorality that he was shooting at. It was those who claimed to misrepresent God, but misrepresented him. That's what was dangerous to Paul. People were making all kinds of mistakes. The, the thing that really concerned him is not somebody who was trying to live the Christian life, but stumbled in terms of what they did. That's one thing we all fall into that. What Paul was, was very concerned about is somebody claiming 
to represent the truth of the gospel, but in fact was misrepresenting it and doing so in order to draw away the devotion of those whom Paul had nurtured. That was really concerning for Paul. And that's what he used the the, the weapon of excommunication against. Um, Paul was most wary of those who were seeking to draw away his disciples after him. Listen to what he says in verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, it was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Uh, When Titus came back, um, he he responded that they received me with fear and trembling. What do you mean by that? It doesn't make sense in the context that they were frightened. It was a a, a fear and trembling. It was this was a, a music to Paul's ear. The fear and trembling here was about anxiousness to please. I want you to think about having a pet dog and, and the dog is at home and then you come back and the dog is licking and jumping up and down and, and that's the fear and trembling and he just can't wait. That's the that's what Paul is talking about. They weren't afraid of Titus or Timothy or Paul. They understood that here is somebody who cares for me and they wanted to show him how much his concern meant and that they really did want to do what he asked them to do. That's the sense of fear and trembling. It's not that they were frightened. It's that they understood his care and they wanted to express their devotion. Uh, This is the image, uh, and this might clarify another text where we find the same words. It says in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, fear and trembling here is the same thing, same picture as with Titus. It's not about fear and loathing. It's a deep desire to please. Well, Paul says God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in you. God is at work in you. God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's the one that's doing the work. And therefore, because God is doing this, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's not doing something because you're afraid that God will drop the hammer. It's God is doing a good work, and it's about an anxiety that this work would move on. It's the same thing that they, it's the same response that they had for Titus that that Paul would have us have with God, who is the one who's doing the work in us. Um, 
wrote an article that kind of gets at this whole notion about whether God motivates us to obey him by causing us to fear him. The Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, but when it says that, are we supposed to be afraid of God? So, anyways, this article from a, uh, a series of uh, articles uh, from a, the book of Ephesians uh, starts off with a question, of, does God motivate us to obey him by causing us to fear him? That's a good question. Um, here's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Before we can treat a condition effectively, we must diagnose it accurately. This is true not only in the physical realm, it's also true in the spiritual realm. Understanding our spiritual sickness is the first step towards spiritual health. What's our default spiritual condition? News isn't good, according to this passage. It talks about being dead in transgressions and sins. We cannot just say no to the cravings of our flesh. We are powerless to resist its desires and thoughts. As a result, we follow the ways of this world and find ourselves in the crosshairs of, of divine justice, being classified as objects of wrath. seems to indicate that all who are born into this world contract this fatal spiritual disease. And so that's our condition. It's not that we make bad choices. It's that we are innervated, animated by a spirit that pulls away from where God wants us to go. Uh, significantly, it goes on in the article, God doesn't hold us responsible for this condition. He isolates the spirit who is at now who is now at work in those who are disobedient as the cause of our spiritual problems. All of us, both Jews and Gentiles, have come under the sway of a toxic religious spirit that puts us to death spiritually. This malignant spirit drains us of spiritual life by, I want you to listen to me, by causing us to be afraid of God. Healthy spirituality is rooted in love. Unhealthy spirituality is rooted in fear. Fearing God's punishment renders us unable to love God, others, or ourselves, and causes us to become spiritually sick. In 1 John 4.18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And what that verse indicates, somebody who's afraid of God, they might, have, they might think they have reason to do so. And it's not because they know so much about God, it's that they don't know enough about him. Perfect love drives out fear. The more you know about God's love, the less fear of punishment is going to be 
kind of reflected in your relationship. Now, all of us, we, as you hear that, you may say, Mike, I, I, I grew up being afraid of God. And I think we can, for many of us, that was the issue. And it doesn't mean, well, what does it mean? It means that we don't know his love well enough because perfect love drives out fear. I guess what that means, if you're afraid of God, then it would behoove you to become a student of his love. Yeah, that's, it goes on. God's Spirit enables us to break free from the binding, enslaving influence of fear. According to Jesus, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Jesus replied in John 8, 34 to 36, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Sin isn't merely a disobedient act in this context. Sin is a dominating power. Sin is a slave master. Jesus didn't come merely to help us make better moral choices. He came to emancipate us from being sin's slaves by liberating us from the influence of the spirit that seeks to root our faith in the fear of God rather than in the love of God. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient triggers loveless disobedience by cultivating fearful faith. Slavery is based on fear. A slave behaves because he or she is afraid not to. The Spirit of God increases our responsiveness to God by decreasing our fear of God. Let's say that again. The Spirit of God increases our responsiveness to God by decreasing our fear of God. It says in Romans 8.15, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. God's Spirit testifies that we are God's children in order that we might not live in fear again. God doesn't liberate us from being sin's slaves so that we might become his slaves. Spiritual slaves live in insecurity. They wonder if they will lose their place in God's family by thinking, saying, or doing something wrong. Sons and daughters of God understand that they cannot forfeit their place in the family by misbehaving. They understand that whereas a slave has no permanent place in the family, a son belongs to it forever. And the article ends. And uh, this morning's thoughts end with this: these statements. God does not use fear to motivate us to obey him. God does not use fear to motivate us to obey him. That's what he saved us from. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for shepherds and like Paul, who at great cost brought a message of good news to those that you dispatched him to so that they would learn true things about you. That those who through Christ, are in relationship with you, need not fear your judgment. There were those who would insert themselves, who did try to insert themselves, and cultivated a sense of fear 
in order to control the sheep. That's not the way you operate. You build in voice recognition. Your sheep hear your voice, and you know them, and they follow you. I guess I'd ask, Father, that you would continue to help us to identify and know your voice, that it's not a fearful voice. You don't use harsh, you're gentle. And as that gentleness becomes the way we, as we become more acclimated to it, we find ourselves moving toward you, not being driven by you, but being drawn by you. We want to follow you because we understand that you're a good shepherd and you're going to lead us to a good place. Thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.